turn with me in your Bibles to that passage which we read a moment ago, Genesis 25. It's on page 26 if you're using the Bible there in the pew. Before we come to look at this evening's passage, I thought I'd take the opportunity to explain something about how the book of Genesis works to you. It seems strange to be starting a a new series halfway through a chapter, uh, chapter 25, verse 19. But we're actually following uh, a very clear division, which is in the book of Genesis, independent of the, the chapter divisions that you and I have grown accustomed to, the 50 chapters. Genesis is divided into 10 chapters of totally unequal length. Um, This actually is the the beginning of chapter 8. And you can tell when a new chapter in Genesis is starting, uh, there's a wee repeated phrase. You see it there in verse 19. This is the account of Abraham's son Isaac. Whenever you see in Genesis, this is the account of such and such or so and so, you know you're beginning one of those new chapters. Let me just, let me just show you by example how this works. Turn with me right back to the, near the start of Genesis chapter 2. By the way, what you're getting here, I paid 30,000 Canadian dollars for a theological education and I'm giving you a, a cheapy version uh, of the same You see there in chapter 2, verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Turn over to chapter 5 and verse 1. This is the account of Abraham's, or sorry, of Adam's line. Turn over to chapter 6, verse 9. This is the account of Noah. If you kept going through Genesis, looking out for those markers, you'd find that there are 10 of them on the way through. Whenever it tells you that this is the account of Noah, it's it's a bit misleading because it's not going to tell you much about Noah. It tends to then tell you about his, his sons, his offspring. Now, we have so far in church life here at Kirkpatrick Memorial, um, we have dealt with the first seven of those chapters in the book of Genesis. And I'd I'd love to sum up for you in two minutes what we have learned in those first seven of those chapters. We've learned in Genesis that God created the earth. And that's a huge thing, particularly when you live in 2006. An awful lot depends on whether you believe that, whether you believe that there is a God and that he created the world. If you don't believe that, then immediately you're parting company with the the biblical account. Very quickly we learn as we read on that humanity rebelled against God, but we learn as well very quickly that God, although he acts in judgment when humanity rebels, he he often and always then shows his grace. There's a sort of a cyclical pattern in the early chapters of Genesis, uh, which begins to feel a bit monotonous by the time you get to the end of chapter 11 uh, with the Tower of Babel. And then something new seems to happen in chapter 12. That's really where the seventh chapter of Genesis begins. 
And the, the cycle of grace, rebellion, judgment, and grace sort of comes to an end because God approaches a guy living in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, a guy called Abraham, and God makes a covenant with him, a promise. He says, Abraham, I'm going to be your God, and your people are going to be a special people of mine. And in our last major series in Genesis here, just about a year ago, in our morning services, we learned together about Abraham. And we learned that although Abraham is flawed every bit as much as any one of us, God is faithful to his promises to Abraham. And there's something about Abraham that really, really pleases God. And it's simply this. Abraham believed God. He believed God's promises that he was going to make something of him and of his descendants. And we're told that God credited that to him as righteousness. And what that means is that God looked at Abraham, this, this flawed and this, this frail man, and he said, Abraham, because you believe me, I'm going to keep with you and do wonderful things in your family. That's a bit of the, a background to the first seven chapters of the book of Genesis. And that's why it seems rather strange at first, but we begin a major new series at chapter 25 and verse 19. This is the beginning of chapter 8. And we're told that this is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Now, it's actually going to end up, as I, as I warned you a moment ago, when it tells you it's going to be the account of Isaac, it's going to end up being the account of his sons, particularly of his son, Jacob. So as Philip said, our evening services the next couple of months, we're going to be looking together at the life of Jacob right through the end of chapter 35. I'm grateful to Monty. He began this series really for us last Sunday evening when he looked at chapter 26. It's the one chapter in the whole of Genesis where Isaac is the lead character. And at first that seems a wee bit strange because we know the names Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob but what's strange is that Abraham gets 10 or 11 chunks of 10 or 11 chapters of the biblical narrative. Isaac gets one, and then Jacob gets another 10 or so. So there's something strange going on here. Why does, why does Isaac get so little space in the biblical narrative? Why is it that he's marginalized in the way that he is? Well, it's all the more remarkable that Isaac's role in the Bible is reduced like this. Whenever you think of the wonderful beginnings that Isaac had in his life, think, think for a moment with me about Isaac's life. He was born as a miracle of God's providence. Do you remember that? How his parents were both beyond the age that either of them could have expected to have children, and yet miraculously they have this son, Isaac. His dad was Abraham. I mean, if Abraham's your dad, you'd hope to, to go on well and to live well for God. As a young boy, we find him faithful, obedient. Do you remember that time when he went up onto the mountain? Uh, there's no sense there of him uh, rebelling on his way to Mount Moriah uh, against God's call on his life. 
And as a young man, God's provided for him miraculously. Gives him a wife in a a wonderful answer to prayer. And even this evening, we're going to see a couple of glimpses of, of Isaac relying on God and finding God's blessing. Despite all of that, despite those promising beginnings and many encouraging moments in the early years of his life, the picture you get of Isaac in these chapters that we're going to look at these next few weeks are are really pretty tragic. By this stage, Isaac is a man who's dominated by his hunger, and he's a man whose eyes can't see clearly anymore. Physically, that's true, but spiritually, it's true as well. He doesn't see anymore what God is doing. He's unwilling to give his family a strong lead. He's unwilling to do what God calls him to, particularly where it differs from his own desires. And I think we have here the likely reason for Isaac's reduced role in God's word. It's due to the shriveled nature of his faith in the latter years of his life. Friends, that happened to Isaac. And it's very possible that it could happen to us too. Despite a great start in our life with God, despite early privileges, it's possible that we won't carry on to become mature men and women of faith. There's nothing automatic about the life of faith. Because we had a good start and because uh, we lived with vigor and passion for God, we can't rely on that to see us through to the end. It's very possible that we end up like Isaac here, blind to what God's doing in the world, driven by our appetites and our desires, every bit as much as people who don't know Jesus at all. And it's possible that like Isaac, we end up on the periphery of the story of salvation and not in the center. Wouldn't that be tragic? Isaac stands as a warning to each one of us. Seek first the kingdom of God. We're told in verse 20 that Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. And in verse 21, we find Isaac praying to the Lord because his wife was barren. Not for the first time in this Genesis narrative do we find that a woman who's been promised children doesn't have children. It was like that with Sarah until that supernatural arrival of Isaac so late in her life. It's going to be like that with Jacob's wife, Rachel. She'll wait a long, long time before the birth of her son, Joseph. This repeated barrenness in these Genesis narratives highlights God's initiative, God's power, to to bring about his plans. If there's going to be a community of faith, it'll only be by God's grace and by God bringing it about. Here's a really wonderful thing about Isaac, actually. 
at this point in his life, he's learned that. Maybe by watching and hearing the stories of his own birth from his mom and his dad. At this point in his life, he trusts God. Unlike his dad, Abraham, he doesn't resort to human scheming. He doesn't take a concubine. Instead, what does he do? He prays. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. Friends, that's what we're called to. A radical obedience to God. Like Isaac relying on God, we're to depend entirely on God, not in our own efforts. In his reflections on Isaac's pleading with God for a child, the biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann makes clear the radical nature of the trust that we're called to. He says there are no guarantees for the future. There is no way to safeguard the inheritance of the family. The family must trust only in the power of God. It's God who gives life. Any pretense that the future is secured is a deception. Isn't the same true of the church? We are always on the lookout for foolproof plans, things that we can do to guarantee God's blessing on us. We have no claims on God. We never will have. There's nothing that we can do to force God's hand. We can't force a guarantee that he'll bless us. Our relationship with God will always be on his terms. We simply trust in his promises and in his goodness. Let's bear that in mind as a congregation here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. Let's, let's flee from presumption. The idea that anything that we have done or will do will make God indebted to us. And let's walk humbly before God. So Isaac prays and he waits. The narrator here does a very interesting thing. He doesn't keep us waiting for the outcome because he tells us straight away, the Lord answered Isaac's prayer and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. One thing you should do sometime, read these Genesis accounts. They're fantastic writing. Just wonderful. As so often in Genesis here, it's a wonderful, skillful piece of writing. Although he doesn't keep us waiting for the outcome, the narrator keeps us waiting until the end of the birth narrative. Look down to verse 26 until he tells us, Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to her son. He was 40 when he married Rebekah, and he's 60 when she gave birth. The narrator leaves us to do the sums. 20 years. They have waited for this boy to be born. Isaac's been waiting and he's been praying for 20 years.
I love Eugene Peterson's comment on this parage. He says, people of faith wait a lot. People of faith wait a lot. We tend to admire the results of faith, he says, but we don't want to participate in the process of faith. The years of barrenness are as much an experience of faith as the moments of conception and birth. Isn't that true? Isn't it true that so much of this life of discipleship, this following Jesus, is about waiting? We're waiting that more of God might be visible in us. We're waiting and waiting for the life of Christ to finally emerge in that member of our family or in that friend or or even here in our church. We've been waiting for years and still we're waiting. Welcome, friends, to the life of faith. People of faith wait a lot. And like Isaac, we, we wait and we pray. It's whenever we pray that, that we somehow manage not to lose heart and somehow not to panic. We wait prayerfully on Jesus. One thing that struck me recently is how Jesus has a perfect sense of timing. Jesus' arrival in the world, do you remember the Bible tells us that Jesus came into the world when the fullness of time had come? We would say when the time was just right. That's when he came, when it was just right for him to come. In John 13 verse 1, we read that Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Everything happens at just the right moment. In the life of faith, we wait and we pray and we keep perfect time with Jesus. In Hamilton Road, the congregation uh, where I grew up, uh, there was an associate minister there a few years ago who had been asking the congregation to pray for some time that uh, they would have children. And God answered that prayer quite incredibly because they ended up with triplets. Um, Rebecca and Isaac have been praying for 20 years. And when their, their moment finally comes, it's not one, but two babies that Rebecca carries in her womb. The two are prodding and poking each other. And it's natural for Rebecca, a woman who's been waiting so long for one child, that she has questions about why God then blesses her with two. She asks God, why is this happening to me? And God makes it clear to her that these two babies in her womb are are going to end up being two different nations. 
their struggle now at the beginning of their life is just a foreshadowing of the whole of their lives. These two are going to to be at it hammer and tongs for the best part of their lives. But there's more here. God not only predicts that Rebecca is going to have these two rival sons, he also predicts that the older is going to serve the younger. Now that's worth noting. In a culture where it was assumed that the eldest uh, would take the leadership of the family, God's predicting the opposite. It's going to be the younger who leads. Now again, if you're familiar with the Genesis narratives, this won't surprise you because that's already happened in the previous generation. It was the younger Isaac and not the firstborn Ishmael who was reckoned to be Abraham's true heir. And again, that was, that was God's choice. It seems, again, that we're being taught something about how God chooses to work. In these early chapters of Genesis, God's going to great lengths to demonstrate that his sovereign choice and not human institutions determine what happens in this world. Paul refers to this incident whenever he's talking about God's sovereign choice in Romans chapter 9. He says, Rebecca's children had one and the same father, yet before the twins had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Paul's making a point. These two fellows had the same dad, Before either of them did anything good or anything bad, God, for some reason, not quite known to us, but for his own purposes, chose Jacob ahead of his brother Esau. Friends, that's important, that we remember God's initiative in calling people to himself. Jesus highlighted that same sovereign choice of God's. He turned to his disciples and he said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I think there's a lovely message of hope in there for all of us because we live in a world that tells us that the whole world is is tilted in favor of particular people that this world is for the strong, it's for the rich, it's for the beautiful. We're told that this is the way the world is and there's nothing you can do about it. In Jacob's case, if you're born two minutes after your twin brother, tough. God's sovereignty tells us something different. God And not blind fate controls the world. God does what he pleases. When the time came, sure enough, Rebecca gave birth to her her twins, boys. Always feel a bit sorry for Esau with his description there. He he sounds like he was born wearing a red fleece bodysuit or something. Um... Ginger, I suppose, would say here in Ireland. Whenever they saw him, in the Bible they do a lovely thing. They, 
they really name you. When they give you a name, they really name you. So they just called him Harry. They said, well, there he is. There's Harry, Esau. And then moments later, his wee brother came out holding on to his heel. So they called him Heel. So there you had it. Harry and Heel, the two sons of Isaac, born to him after 20 years of prayer and of waiting. From what we've seen so far, we're expecting these boys to be chalk and cheese. We're expecting them to be somehow always rubbing up against each other, bumping off one another. We've been told that they struggled in the womb. We've been told that they'll represent two separate nations. And we're even told how Esau looks so different than than his, his twin brother, Jacob. Well, in verse 27, the narrator carries on building up this this understanding of the contrast between the two of them. Esau is a strapping outdoors hunter type. And Jacob's quieter. He stays closer to home. It's not only the sons, actually, who are divided. The parents are are divided too. Isaac loves Esau, we're told, because he has a taste for wild game. Here's a a trap for parents, isn't it? That we love the child who gives us what we want. If that's a trap of parenthood, then we say Isaac fell into it, hook, line, and sinker. Rebecca, for reasons that aren't made quite so clear, loves Jacob. If you take a step back from this, it's all really strange. This is the family that's carrying the blessing of God. These are the descendants of Abraham. This is the family that's going to bless the whole world in the name of God. Could God not have chosen better than this? Monty reminded us of it last week, and we'll see it again here today. This isn't a perfect family. Far from it. The sons, you can already see that they're going to be fighting they bit out their whole lives. The parents are showing favoritism. The whole family is divided, two against two. The whole thing's a shambles. And yet this is the family in which God chooses to work. Sometimes we imagine that God's people are perfect, or at least good, We can imagine it before we come to faith. We can look at Christians and we can say, you know, I could never be like that. I could never be as good as them. But sometimes we imagine it after we come to faith, particularly years after we've come to faith. Over time, over years of following Jesus, we begin to imagine that we we follow God on our own merits. That somehow over the passage of time, We have become better than the people around us. Friends, the message of the Bible and the message of Genesis is that God chooses the foolish and the the foolish and the weak things of this world. He chooses families like, like Isaac's and he chooses people like you and me. And the humbling thing is 
He chooses us on purpose. Just so that people are sure that it's all about him. He chooses the losers so that there's no doubt at all that anything good in us is of his grace. If you find yourself frustrated when you read these these passages in Genesis, just enter into it. Say, yeah, that, that family, that's, that's kind of like me. That Esau and that, that Jacob, that Isaac. There's a lot of me in there. And thank God for his grace that he chooses to work in places like this and with people like this. We're going to spend the, the last few minutes looking at the real action in our passage this evening. The passage tells of a time when Esau sold his birthright. He's been out hunting, he's starving, and he comes home to the best smell in the world. Home cooking. Jacob is cooking. He's got the stew on the stove. And he's starving. Esau's starving. Naturally enough, he says, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And Jacob agrees, but not without driving a really hard bargain. He says, I'll give you some stew if you give me your birthright. Now, what is it? What is it that he's asking for? What's Jacob asking Esau to give him? Well, the birthright is the status of the firstborn. So whoever has the birthright gets a double share in the inheritance and they become a leader of the family. They lead the next generation of the family. Now, interestingly, it is transferable. What's going on here isn't illegal. This works. But you wouldn't transfer your birthright except in the most dire and extreme circumstances. In the light of all that, whatever Jacob, what Jacob's asking Esau here for seems crazy. Like, who on earth would ever give up all the benefits of the birthright for the momentary gratification of a pot of stew? Who on earth would do that? Well, Esau, for one. He's hungry. He wants to eat. And he wants to eat now. What good's a birthright, he says, whose benefits he'll have to wait years to enjoy? Jacob sees his opportunity. I'm imagining him with a bowl in his hand, ready to hand it over, and saying, no, not before you swear the birthright to me. And Esau does just that. He swears an oath to Jacob, selling his birthright to his younger brother. And from the narrative, you get the impression that the whole thing has hardly given Esau a thought. We read that he's given the bread and the stew. You can see by the way it's written, he ate, he drank, he got up, and he left. So what? So Esau despised his birthright. What are we going to make of this incident? Well, it seems obvious to me that neither of these two sons of Isaac cover themselves in glory here. 
Esau clearly takes after his father. In verse 28, we're told, Isaac had a taste for wild game. These guys are dominated by their stomachs, by their appetite. You can get them to do anything you want by setting a bowl of stew in front of them. The the Bible versions actually tone down Esau's desperation to get this stew. The Hebrew says something like, let me gulp down some of the red stuff, this red stuff. He's like an animal. The red hairy hunter comes in and Esau's only interested in the present and the tangible. And the assessment of Esau much later in the Bible, in Hebrews 12, isn't positive. Believers are warned not to be like Esau, godless, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the eldest son. If you're somebody who likes a black and white world, sorry, it's not here in this chapter. Esau is a terrible guy. And Jacob's not great either. Jacob's clearly a schemer. Knows how to manipulate a situation to get what he wants. He exploits Esau's hunger and his misery. His values are right, we're going to discover. But his methods are wrong. If anything good's ever going to come of Jacob here, it's only going to be by the grace of God. Let me finish for this evening. As many of you know, and as you'll certainly discover if you stay with us on this series over the next couple of months, Jacob is the one on whom God's blessing finally rests. Why is that? These are both flawed characters. In this chapter, they're they're as bad as each other. Why is it that Jacob finally lives under the blessing of God? I think it's because of his appetite for God. We've seen tonight the lengths that he'll go to to win the birthright. And there's something very important here we haven't mentioned yet. This is no ordinary birthright. This is no ordinary family. This is the family which has received the blessing of God. This is the family of Abraham. This is the family God's going to use to bless the whole world. And these boys know it. They know it because their dads told them. They know it because their grandfather, Abram, is still alive. And he's told them the story of how Yahweh, God, has appeared to him and made promises to him. Do you see what's happening in this episode? Whenever Esau sells his birthright, he's saying, the blessing of God doesn't matter to me. God's promises are a thing of indifference to me. I don't care if I'm part of the community of God's people or not. I can live without it. That's why Esau finally ends up living outside of God's promises. 
Why does Jacob finally come under God's blessing? It's because he's desperate for it. It's because he doesn't want to live if living will be without the blessing of God. In this chapter, we find him acting wrongly, plotting and scheming against his brother. But he's right. He's right to want what his brother has. Jacob is the father of those who hunger after God. He's the father of those who ask until it's given to them, who seek until they find, who knock until the door is open to them. Jacob's hungry. Hungry for God's blessing. And he's willing to wait and to wait and to wait until he gets it. Friends, that's the challenge of this passage for us this evening. We're challenged here to examine our own appetites. Are we desperate for God? Or will other things do? Is our life one single-minded pursuit of our birthright? The life of blessing with God? Or are we willing to accept the, the bowls of stew that pass us by from time to time. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you again for the complete reality and honesty of your word. We thank you that it presents people as people really are, flawed, frail, and in need of your grace. Father God, as we have thought tonight of Esau and of his brother Jacob, Lord, we pray that we would, we would follow in the footsteps of Jacob. Lord, even in the midst of our corruption and our manipulative ways, in the midst of our, our deception, we pray that somewhere in the heart of us, a hunger for you would be growing. A hunger for you that would move more and more into our lives and through our lives until it becomes the direction and center of our lives. Lord, make us people who will not let go of you until you've blessed us. Lord, we know you long to bless us. We pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen.